Listen, Dr. Pentecost used to tell us over and over and over again in seminary, when the plain sense makes good sense, seek no other sense, otherwise you come up with nonsense. And that's true. The plain sense is clear. This is a literal event that is going to happen. There's a literal place called the abyss. Jesus mentioned it. And this abyss is both shut and sealed, the text says, until the thousand years are completed. This is the place of restraint so that he, Satan, would not deceive the nations any longer. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today is part two of Pastor Carl's sermon entitled, When Heaven Comes to Earth, Part One. Today, Dr. Brogy addresses how the Millennial Kingdom progresses under Christ's sovereignty. Today, Dr. Brogy addresses how the Millennial Kingdom progresses under Christ's sovereignty. Revelation 20 verse 4 says, Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and the judgment was given to them. And I saw the soul of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus, and because the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. This is a reminder that the world will be restored under Christ's blessing. Let's join Pastor Carl now as he continues. So it's, again, it's important to consider here the language that is used. You know, I have a few Bibles that have no chapter and verse divisions. And occasionally I'll take one off the shelf and I'll read it because I don't want to be distracted by the verse divisions or the chapter divisions, and that can be helpful sometimes. Now notice, um, uh, by the way, you might ask, well, why did they add them and who added them? They were added almost a thousand years after the Bible was completed. There was a Jewish rabbi who added them for the Old Testament, and a short time later, some Christians who added them for the New Testament. And they're important because otherwise some of you still would be looking for Revelation chapter 20. You know, like they had all these scrolls and they wrote on the outside of the scroll the name of the scroll. Is this Habakkuk or is this Isaiah? Well, we wrote Isaiah on there. And where on this scroll? You know, when Jesus opens up the scroll in Nazareth, I mean, he knows that scroll so well, he can just move right to the spot where he wants to read from Isaiah 61. We have the chapter and verse divisions. And so remember, follow the flow of thought here in chapter 19 and verse 20 when we studied the second coming we read and the beast was seized he's the antichrist and with him the false prophet he is the antichrist man who points men to the antichrist who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone so these are the first two recipients no one is in Gehenna, hell, they're in Hades today, but no one's in hell yet. The first two people to go into hell are the Antichrist and his false prophet. Well, it would only seem logical, having dealt with two members of this unholy trinity, that he would now deal with the third member. And so, as we're going to see today, he's going to begin to deal with Satan, and he'll finish his dealing before the chapter is over. Um, If you have taken my course on angels, and if you're interested, we offer something called the Institute of Biblical Studies. I I teach it on a master's level. Many are taking it, but not for credit. They just download the notes and 
work through the messages, but some are taking it to get a, a degree of sorts. It doesn't cost anything except your time and hard work and papers you have to write and books you have to read and your pastor who has to read your papers. <laughs> but there are six stages to Satan's career as we cover in angelology. Stage one is his ministry as the anointed cherub. He's described as a magnificent, beautiful angel leading the other angels of God in worship. Stage two is his fall. His fall is recorded in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. It's easy to remember. 14 times two is 28. So Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, the fall of Satan is described. His pre-fall name was Lucifer. Now the term Lucifer has an evil ring to it today. And we speak of, you know, Luciferian people. But actually, it means the shining one, and it was his pre-fall name, and he was renamed Satan. Stage three is his fall from the heavenlies to the earth. So during the great tribulation, Satan, who wreaks havoc in the, havoc in the heavenly realms with all his demons, all those demons, one-third of all the angels rebelled against God. They are literally, physically, actually swept down to the earth during the time of the great tribulation. Life is not pleasant. Stage four is Satan's restriction in the abyss. And by application, I think his demons with him. Where for a thousand years, as Jesus is reigning on the earth, he has no freedom to wreak habit. Stage five is Satan's release after the thousand years. And then stage six is his eternal condemnation in the lake of fire. So Satan is not in hell yet, contrary to popular belief. Most people think he's in hell. Right now, hell is not inhabited by anyone. The first two will be the false prophet and the antichrist, but ultimately Satan and all those who follow Satan. You say, well, I don't follow Satan. Well, if you're not born again, you are. Because Jesus said, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. And so very dramatically, Paul said, you must be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved son. And if you've only been born once, you'll die twice as Revelation 20 is gonna unfold before we're done in this series. And so there's no such thing as neutrality. But right now, we're in stage four, here in verse one. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. So God the Father, God the Son, or God the Spirit could have easily have bound Satan. But what do they do? Angel, come here. And I think that's significant. Because God wants to underscore that Satan is not his opposite and equal. He's a limited, created person. He's not omnipotent. He's not all-powerful. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And the he there is equally true of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Because the Bible teaches, whether you know it or not, that you are indwelt by God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So this angel comes down from heaven, and uh, he has this great chain in his hand. By the way, Satan is a limited being. God is right now allowing Satan to wreak havoc. Now, God's not the author of sin, but God can use sin in a sinless way, and he can accomplish his sovereign purposes. And I think we'll see that, especially before we're done with this series. But right now, the career of Satan is on hold. And so I saw an angel coming from heaven with the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And so there's a sequence here, then or and, it's the next event after the casting of the, uh, the beast and the false prophet into the lake of fire. By the way, this slide indicates that there are four categories of demons. Demons are in one of four places today. Remember, God created all the angels as holy. A third of the angels rebelled with Satan. They're called 
demons. Some demons are in the heavenlies. That's Ephesians 6. We wage war not against simply flesh and blood people, but against powers and principalities. Satan can toss his darts at the people of God, his fiery darts, and he is crafting the world system. He crafted a commercial for tonight, for the Super Bowl, and many people will be deceived by that. He doesn't have to tempt every single person. He only needs one person to pull off what he wants to do, and he does it. So there are these who are in the heavenlies, and so Daniel 10 illustrates it, this war in the, even in the angelic realm and why Daniel's prayer was hindered and slowed down, so to speak, in terms of its answer. There's another group who are in a place called Tartarus. That's a certain compartment of what we might call hell. Second Peter 2, Jude 6 describes them. They are in eternal bonds. This is a group of demons who have absolutely no power to tempt anyone. They are in eternal bonds until they ultimately go into the lake of fire. They're on death row, so to speak. What do they do? Well, Genesis 6 describes it, and the New Testament gives us commentary on it. They cohabitated with the daughters of men. There's a third group of angels that are in the abyss. Remember on that occasion when Jesus goes to Gadarene, and there's two men, and they're just filled with demons, 2,000? The lead demon's name was Legion, and Jesus is going to deliver these two men. And the text says in Luke's account, they were imploring him not to command them to go away into the abyss. And the demons implored him to permit them to enter the swine. And he gave them permission. So there's different compartments of judgment. Some angels are in eternal bonds. There are some angels right now who are in a place called the abyss. These are the worst of the worst. And Jesus deemed that these were not the worst of the worst, so he let them go into the swine, and they were drowned, uh, the pigs in the sea. But if you studied with me the revelation, there's coming a day when the abyss will be opened. And these angels, for five months, will wreak havoc across the earth. And then back to the diagram. Um, yeah, there we go. There's the fourth place of demons. None of them are there yet, and it's the lake of fire, and we have yet to study that. So again, verse 1, I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. So this angel has this great chain. Now, Satan is a spirit being. Uh, he can manifest himself physically, but typically he's a spirit being like most demons. You say, well, what kind of a chain could confine a spirit being? Well, the same kind of eternal chains that are binding uh, those demons that are in Tartarus today. I don't know how God is going to do it. I take it it's not some kind of chain that you buy at the Home Depot that's, you know, super strong and galvanized. But God somehow is going to bind Satan for a thousand years in the abyss. It's a supernatural chain. Satan's doom will come by God's intervention. Secondly, there in your outline, Satan's doom will come by God's incarceration, by his incarceration. We read here in verse 2, and he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So four titles or names are given to us. Notice the dragon, the serpent, the devil, and Satan. And each name reveals something about our enemy. The dragon, it's used 13 times in the Revelation, largely in the 12th chapter. The dragon is looking for someone to devour. And in Revelation 12, the word dragon is modified by the word great, great dragon. Because Satan, of course, is the chief. He is the top of all fallen demonic forces. And not only is he called the great dragon, he's also called in the Revelation the great 
red, purus dragon. Red being a symbol, purus, for, for blood. And that's Satan's nature. He is evil. He wants to terrorize and murder people. The thief comes only to kill and to destroy and to steal. Jesus in John 8 said of Satan, he was a murderer from the beginning. He's a dragon. He's ferocious. He has a lust for blood to murder people. And he's doing it across the planet through abortion and war and so many other things. He's also called the serpent of old. The word old is the Greek word. It comes directly into English as archaic. No one likes to be called archaic. But Satan is called the old serpent. He's just underscoring. This is the same serpent that slithered onto the pages of human history as recorded in Genesis chapter 3. And of course, uh, he's also called uh, the devil, diabolo in, in Greek. It means someone who slanders. And what does Satan do today? Well, among other things, Revelation 12 says he's the accuser of the brethren. He accuses you before God in heaven. And of course, there's only three times in all of Scripture where you actually hear the voice of Satan. The first time you hear the voice of Satan is in Genesis 3. And what does he do? He slanders God before man. The second time you hear the voice of Satan is in the book of Job. And in the book of Job, he slanders man before God. He says, oh, Job, he doesn't really love you. You bought his love. Take away some of his blessing. And it will show he doesn't really love you. And the third time that he slanders someone is he slanders the God-man, Luke 4, Matthew 4. He is a slanderer. That's one of his titles. In addition, so he's called the dragon and that he's looking for someone to devour. He is called here the serpent. He's looking for someone to deceive. He's a deceiver. And so there's a commercial tonight on the... Super Bowl, they spent $20 million to show it. It's called He Gets Us. It's supposed to be about Jesus. It's not about Jesus. It's another Jesus that's being presented. But many Americans say, oh, yeah, He gets us. Satan is a deceiver. But, you know, again, people are ignorant of Scripture today, and most, even Christian people, I fear, won't have the discernment to read between the lines and to read the clear statements that are made that this commercial didn't originate in heaven. He's the dragon. He wants to devour us. He's the serpent. He wants to deceive us. He's the devil. He wants to defame us. And he's also called Satan. The word satanus means adversary. He hates you. I hope you know the devil hates you. He wants to defeat you. But God will have the last word. Satan is powerful, but he's not all powerful. He laid hold, verse 2, of the dragon, the servant of old, who's the devil and Satan. And what did he do? He bound him for a thousand years. So this angel laid hold of him. It's It's a Greek word that means he has power over him. And again, this is God's angel showing that this creature called Satan is limited. And with a great chain, he bounds him for a thousand years. Look at the additional details in verse 3. He threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Now, the amillennialist, and we'll talk about him in just a moment, He denies the literal nature of this transaction. 
He says that, look, you know, this is not a literal chain. There's not a literal Satan that's going to be bound in a literal place called the abyss. He looks at Revelation chapters 4 through 18. He says it's all history. He looks at Matthew 24, said it all happened before 70 AD, and he spiritualizes the text. Listen, Dr. Pentecost used to tell us over and over and over again in seminary, when the plain sense makes good sense, seek no other sense, otherwise you come up with nonsense. And that's true. The plain sense is clear. This is a literal event that is going to happen. There's a literal place called the abyss. Jesus mentioned it. And this abyss is both shut and sealed, the text says, until the thousand years are completed. This is the place of restraint so that he, Satan, would not deceive the nations any longer. So Satan right now is deceiving people. And the thing about deception is people who are deceived don't know they're deceived. That's the nature of deception. And so Satan is deceiving people in every age. And there are people today who believe untruths. They create untruths as he is crafting the world system around us. They speak untruths. They speak print untruths, they drink untruths, they smoke untruths, they watch untruths because they're deceived. Deception is when you think something is true and you embrace it as true. And that's why a pastor is supposed to preach with an open Bible. You know, people come here and they say, I didn't know I needed to bring a Bible. I've never needed one before to come to church. Of course not, because some pastor reads a text and never teaches the text. You don't need my blather. You don't need my thoughts. You need the word of God because that's what's going to give you discernment in the evil age in which we live. And so sadly, there are those who spiritualize this. They're amillennialists and they don't apply the same principle of interpretation that they do to the rest of the Bible. All the prophecies, over 300, concerning the first coming, how were they fulfilled? Literally, actually. He'll be born in Bethlehem. Where was he born? Bethlehem. He'll be raised in Nazareth. Nazareth. Every single prophecy. Literally fulfilled. But somehow when they come to the second coming, they use a different principle of interpretation. Where does this come from? It comes out of Roman Catholicism. The Roman Catholic popes through the ages, for the most part, have been anti-Semites. I'm not saying everyone was. But I preached a sermon one time on the anti-Semitism of the Roman popes quoting right out of their documents. And so they said, God's done with the Jewish people. Where are the chosen people? And so you get these reformers who are entrenched in Catholicism. They get saved by hearing the gospel of grace, but they carry with them a whole lot of baggage. They say, well, you know, Satan was bound, the amillennial says at the cross. Well, I don't doubt for a second, because the Bible affirms it, that Satan's defeat was announced at the cross. But it won't be actualized until, as we'll see, at the second coming and then at the end of the millennium. Look, if, if Satan is bound, why is there so much deception in the world? If he's already been chained, he must be on a very, very long chain. So the kingdom commences with Satan's doom. Secondly, there in your outline, the millennial kingdom progresses under Christ's sovereignty. It progresses under his sovereignty. Again, in verse four, and I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. These are tribulation saints. Those who had not worshiped the beast, the antichrist, or his image, 
that not received the mark on their forehead or on their hand, the 666, Revelation 13. And they came to life, and what did they do? They reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So all the martyred tribulation saints are reigned now here at the second coming of Christ. Now, it might be helpful to define some terms here because and between these two services and the different campuses, we have a lot of new believers. And some of these terms are like a foreign language to you. As I told an 11-year-old boy in my office this week, he told me math was his favorite subject, and I said, you know your numbers? Yeah. Uh, You know how to add and subtract? Yeah. You know how to multiply and divide? Yeah. Do you know geometry? No. Not sure what that is. How about algebra? No. How about trigonometry? No. How about calculus? No. I said, now, every facet of math is built on the next. And so I said to him, look, when I preach a sermon, open your heart to God. Ask God to speak to you because he wants to speak to the heart of an 11-year-old boy. But understand, I'm teaching some people their numbers. They may be 11, they may be 71, but they're new to the faith. And there are some who may have been Christians for decades, but they've never matured, so they're just kind of learning the basics. But there's something here for everyone. But these are things God put in his word that you can understand. And so we need to understand it. And so when you think about the kingdom that is to come, there are different views on it. And I say this because you're going to hear it sooner or later. Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He taught us to pray for that. It's never happened. But the Bible prophesies it. Every year we read typically Isaiah 9 at Christmas. And it's elucidated, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. That's the incarnation. And the government will rest on his shoulders. That's never happened. But it's going to happen. Listen to Jeremiah 23. There's scores of passages that speak of a coming kingdom. There the prophet said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king, and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will call the Lord our righteousness. The apostles likewise believed that there was a literal coming kingdom. Remember, after Jesus was resurrected, he walked on the earth for 40 days. And there on the Mount of Olives, when he's about ready to ascend into heaven, he's saying, don't leave Jerusalem until the promise that I've described to you of the Spirit of God comes to indwell you because you need him to empower you to live a godly life. And so they ask a profound question, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? Why would they ask that question? Because in the Old Testament passages where the kingdom is described, the Holy Spirit's power is accompanied with that kingdom, where people have a knowledge of God the way the sea covers the earth. It's coming. So is this the time, Lord? And this would have been a perfect time for Jesus to say, no, the kingdom's canceled. It's over. There won't be a literal kingdom. He just said, it's not for you to know the times or the epics. On another occasion, Peter asked Jesus, he said, look, we've left everything to follow you. What, what, what do we get? Truly, I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you shall sit upon 12 thrones, thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Peter in Acts 3, he gets up and he preaches what Jesus told him. He said he preached in Acts 3 of one whom heaven must receive until until the period of the restoration of all things. The kingdom hasn't been canceled. He's preaching to Jews. It's just been postponed. But there's coming a time called the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke how? By the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient times. 
So he's reminding them that the Old Testament and the law and the prophets spoke of a literal rule of the Messiah upon the earth. What we learn in Revelation chapter 20 is the length of that kingdom. Not that there will be a kingdom, simply the length of the kingdom, that it will be a thousand years. Some Jewish rabbis in the Mishnah said it was 40 years. Some said it was 70 years. Some said it was 400 years. One said it was 7,000 years. Jesus, through his servant John, when he gives John this revelation, reveals it's a thousand years. It's exactly a thousand years. You say, Pastor Carl, do you think a thousand years means a thousand years? Absolutely. I mean, look, all the way through the revelation, God uses numbers in a literal way. Even in the immediate context, the thrones are literal. The angels are literal. The martyrs who've been beheaded, they're literal. Jesus is literal. The beast, the antichrist is literal. The image that men worship, that's literal. The 666 is literal, and so is the thousand-year reign. But you see, the amillennialist says, well, that's just a, a number of fullness. Things, you know, through the Lord reigning in heaven, there's his kingdom up in heaven, but he's not going to literally reign on the earth. So there's three schools of thought when you think about the reign of the Messiah. So let me give these to you. One is called amillennialism, and this has become very popular in the American church today. Amillennialism, just to picture it, it says that there will be apostasy throughout this time where Christ is building his church. There will be tribulation. But there's not coming a literal antichrist who will walk into a rebuilt temple and defile it. And all these things that we read in Matthew 24 and in Revelation 4 through 18, they're, they're just describing hard times. There's not literal 100-pound hail balls that are come to the earth. There's not literally a, this massive earthquake that's going to rock the cities of the world. The next event is the second coming. The second coming, there's one big judgment. The saved and the lost are separated, and we enter into the eternal state. That's uh, millennialism. Ah is a prefix that means no. Mille means a thousand. Annum means year. So they say there's no thousand-year reign of Christ. They spiritualize it away. Here's the second position. It's called post-millennialism. There's very few post-millennialists, but there's a small revival of them taking place. But it was a very popular theological persuasion in the 18th and 19th centuries. They said that Jesus at some point, through his church, will make the world more and more and more righteous. That things will get better and better and better and better, and it will culminate with the second coming. Well, after World War I, they lost a following by some of the Postmillennialists. After World War II, there was almost no postmillennialists. And by the way, the postmillennialists, for the most part, was initiated through people who didn't believe in the infallibility of Scripture. They were liberal theologians, but they persuaded some Christians to think that this was a position that you should take. Look, if you take Matthew 24 at face value or Revelation 4 through 18 at face value, according to the Scriptures, things are not going to get better. Jesus taught things are going to get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And so the post-millennialist has a social gospel emphasis. Look, I'm not against helping earthquake victims. I'm, I'm praying for those Christian organizations that are there. Because right now they're allowed to be there. They're not usually allowed to be there. But right now they're allowed to be there and they're helping some of those people in the name of Jesus. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 
1-800-273-7478 and requesting program God's Prophetic Schedule 025. Don't forget that tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife Audrey is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. You can hear more of Audrey's messages on the Search the Scriptures app found on the iTunes and Google Play Store. Also, check out her podcast, Rare But Real, on Apple, Google, and Spotify podcast platforms. You can also listen to her podcast at searchthescriptures.org. We hope that you will join us next week as we continue to search the scriptures.